Well, good morning, Arcadia. We are glad that you are here. My name is Frank, if you're uh, new. Um, uh, one of the things, especially if you're new, I need to mention this because I have a quickie announcement about Big R Redemption that's really exciting. Um, Redemption, if you don't know, is actually one church with seven congregations, and we are the Arcadia congregation. So we have uh, uh, a church out in the Gateway area, Queen Creek, uh, Gilbert, Tempe, uh, Flagstaff, a number of different places. Uh, in, in 2013, we entered discussions with a church on the west side, uh, sort of in what would be called Alhambra Village, uh, the west side of Phoenix, uh, called Life Connection Church, and uh, their pastor Aaron Daly began to work very closely with us, and uh, over the course of the year we determined that it was um, God's uh, leading that we should um, uh, join together with Life Connection Church, and they became our seventh congregation. So they are Redemption Alhambra Village. We announced that um, towards the end of last year, and as of uh, the first of the year, they became our seventh congregation. Also, co- coinciding with that, over the last six months, there have been discussions uh, taking place because Re- um, Life Connection Church and now Redemption uh, Alhambra Village had been meeting in an industrial park at about 29th Avenue in Indian School. Um, a, a church, a Lutheran church, located at 19th Avenue in Glen Rosa, which is uh, Glen Rosa is between Indian School and Camelback. <clears throat> they contacted Tyler Johnson, our lead pastor, and we entered into conversations at their initiation that ended up with them gifting us their property for the Alhambra Village congregation. It's nearly six acres. It has a bunch of buildings, including, get this, a gym. So now we're going to have to come up with a basketball team and a volleyball team and all that stuff. But they've gifted that to us. We get to announce it this morning, and uh, they're hoping that they're going to be able to do the work necessary to get them in by Easter. They just need to do a little bit of, of work to get them in by Easter, and then they'll start doing a little bit more work. But I want to show you some pictures of the property. This is unbelievable what God has done for us. Uh, there, well, there's, this, there's our stop sign. We got a stop sign out of this deal, which is very exciting. There's the front of the sanctuary, and you can see some buildings over there to the right. Go ahead, and, and there's a part of the courtyard area of this church. Understand, it's nearly six acres, so it's a good-sized property. Uh, stuff for kids there. There's a daycare that meets there already during the week inside of the uh, sanctuary there. <clears throat> there's the gym. Isn't that awesome with the, with the wood? I mean, it's just, there's a kitchen, or a stove anyway. <laughs> kitchen, and then again, there's a playground area. We're going to be working on that grass, uh, most certainly. Is that it, or is there one? Oh, there's one more. Uh, another uh, view from one of the uh, side streets and from the parking lot there, so... Isn't that awesome what God has done for us? It's just fantastic. Um, So in the midst of that, of course, the elders of Arcadia have been contacting all the Lutheran churches in our area. (laughs) Just kidding about that. They gifted that property to us. It's just amazing. Now, they're going to have to raise some money to be able to kind of do some, some aesthetic work, but for the most part, it's in very, very good shape. So God is really good. So we can be thanking God for his graciousness to us uh, this morning, even as we talk about the love of God and how it never separates us uh, from him in Christ Jesus. Let me pray, and then we'll get into Romans chapter 8. God, we thank you for who you are, and we just thank you for your majesty and your sovereignty and for what you've done uh, for Redemption Church over these last few years since we have become one church with all these congregations. God, we thank you for um, 
Tyler and, and Aaron and their leadership, and we pray for Alhambra Village this morning. We just, we just ask that as Aaron gets busier and busier, that, uh, that God, that you would uh, bless him and empower him to be able to do his work. And, and again, we thank you for Tyler and his leadership and his ability uh, that you gave him to, to be able to enter into those conversations and, and, um, and, and make the leadership of that church feel like redemption was the church that they wanted to uh, partner with. So God, we're thankful for that. And God, now as we uh, open up and, and continue in the, in the book of Romans and we look at the last part of Romans chapter 8, this magnificent verse, I really pray that you would just open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say for us. And God, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears, uh, not to my preaching, but to your word, God, that you would move through your word and, and pierce all of our hearts this morning. Let us know of the love that you have for us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are many what people would call crescendos in the Bible, meaning uh, there, there are places in the Bible where the, the writer of Scripture uh, moves into sort of a, an emotional fever pitch, a high, uh, where, where the, there's so much passion uh, that it just can't be held down by a simple text. And, and, and what we look at today is one of those crescendo areas, especially verses 38 and 39, the last the last two verses of Romans chapter 8. If you're not there uh, yet, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter, uh, chapter 8. That's, that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, and so we're looking at a crescendo passage. And, and just to give you some context, again, we've been in Romans chapter 8 for 10 weeks now, and it's been magnificent. Uh, m- many people call this the, the most majestic uh, chapter in all of the New Testament. Uh, and, and it's set up by, towards the end of chapter 7, Paul gives one presentation of the gospel. And essentially that presentation goes like this. Uh, God, I know I'm the problem, and I know that there is no one or nothing that can save me, but thank you that through your Son, and through your intervention, and through your grace and your love, you have saved me, you have delivered me uh, from, from my own sin and from my own peril. And from my own corruption. And I'm filled with gratitude about that. And then, and then, and then that launches us into this chapter 8 that we've been studying the last 10 weeks. Which is, which is the chapter that is the undeniable affirmation of our security as believers in Christ Jesus. That, that it starts by telling us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It ends with the passage we look at today. That, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, and everything in the middle talks about how we just can't be defeated if we're in Christ. We've been adopted as, as children of, of God's. We, we have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling within, within us now, and that's what we live by, and that we're recipients of His grace and His mercy. And it's a magnificent uh, chapter. And, and he caps this chapter, interestingly enough, in this passage with yet another presentation of the gospel, but it's, but the uh, perspective and the emphasis of this gospel presentation is a little bit different, perhaps, than the one at the end of chapter 7. The one at the end of chapter 7 talks about our ultimate deliverance from our sin and our reconciliation with God, our deliverance from the possibility of spending eternity in hell and actually being able to go to heaven. Uh, here, in chapter 8, the, the gospel that he presents us with 
is yes, it's also that we get to go to heaven, but it also is a presentation that within the gospel, we have everything that we need for life here on earth right now. That life for us doesn't really start just when we get to heaven. That we're wrestling with sin and challenges and and difficulties now. And in the midst of that, because of his love, God gives us everything that we need in order to be able to live that life. So let me read it again. I I know we've read it once. I want to read it again because I just believe that the more we can get God's word into our hearts and into our bones, the better off that we are, the closer we, we come to him. So Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? So that's Paul's way of saying, okay, I'm going to kind of launch into a new area and and I'm going to talk a little bit about the answer to that question in just a second. But then he starts this passage with several more questions. Now these questions are these that follow that first question are more like rhetorical questions. He's not necessarily expecting anybody to answer or to debate with him, but rather they're statements or affirmations of what he's saying, but he's doing it through the rhetorical device of questioning. So he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Just a quick mention there. Understand that in verses 26 and 27, we had the Holy Spirit interceding on behalf. And now we have the Son, Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the Father, also interceding for us on our behalf. This is really good news, and we should celebrate that. Verse 35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Those are all bad things. And all of those things we recognize are potential things that we would look at and think that they could separate us from God somehow. And he's arguing that they can't separate us. As it is written, and then he quotes Psalm 44. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are, re- we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I want to I unpack that during this message because that's really important to understand what Paul is trying to say there because it seems a little bit random and a little bit harsh. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul starts by asking the question, what are we going to say to these things then? These, these things. Paul knows that his previous section in Romans chapter 8 is going to raise all kinds of questions in his context and of course they raise questions in our context. We've been, we've been uh, working through those questions. We wrestle with these things even today and it's a, a good wrestling. And, and these nine verses that we look at today are not his only answer to these things. In fact, in fact he's going to use all of chapter 11, uh, I'm sorry, 9, 10, and 11 also to be answering, looking back at and answering this question, what do we say then to these things? And, and, and what are these things? It's these things of foreknowing and predestination and, and calling and, and what is God's goodness and what is God's purpose. All of those things that we looked at essentially in verses 26 through 30 for the last three weeks. 
And Paul's claim, first of all, in these nine verses that we look at, is that, well, the first thing I would say about these things is that there's, there's tremendous privilege and benefit to these things because there's nothing can, that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so we'll look at that today. So the first answer that Paul gives us is not wrestling with the theology of election. That's coming. Don't worry. We're going to do that in 9, especially in 10 and 11 as well. But rather, the first thing Paul does is to say, this is a really good thing. What I've just presented to you is a good thing because it affirms your security in God through Jesus Christ and nothing can separate us from that love. But then he does go off and to talk about what you and I struggle with the most, and they struggled with as well. And, and, and if you wanted to just oversimplify it and boil it down, it would be the not fair, not fair theology of election. Because that's how we often approach this conversation about election and predestination and foreknowledge and those things. Well, all of chapters 9, 10, and 11 are in response to Paul's assumption that chapter 8 is going to raise those questions, but also in, in 10 and 11 especially, we get an understanding, or at least a little better understanding, of, of Paul dealing with the fact that in the church at Rome, there, were, there was maybe some, uh, some contention between the Jews and the Gentiles, the, the different ethnicities in there, in trying to assert their priority in salvation in God's plan. And so Paul uses uh, chapters 10 and 11 also to uh, address that. That's looking ahead, but today we answer the first part of the question, God loves us with a love that we cannot fathom, a love that we can never be separated from. And Paul presents this part of his answer to the what shall we say question with five more questions. And I know some of you are doing the math and you're going, there's more than five questions there. Well, we're combining a couple of those questions because they're essentially asking the same thing. I told you last week that the great preacher John Stott called the five verbs that we looked at last week in verses 29 and 30, uh, the five undeniable affirmations of our security in Christ. In verses 31 through 35, Stott calls these the five unanswerable questions. And by unanswerable, what we mean by that is that they're rhetorical questions. They're not necessarily designed for us to answer, but rather to just, us. Paul assumes that we already know the answer to these, but he's using it to drive home his point that God really loves us. And that first question is at the end of verse 31. If God is for us, then who can be against us? And that's, a, that's an interesting question because maybe it's not quite worded uh, to, to, to explain what Paul really means by that question, Certainly things are going to come against us. People are going to come against us. There are things that, are come, that come against us. Just because we're in Christ, it doesn't mean that, that we quit having challenges. But really what Paul is saying there is if, Paul, if God is for us, then who, when they come against us, is able to prevail against us? And nothing can prevail against us. We have victory in Christ. That's what he's trying to drive home. But the question is asked in two parts. And one of the things we should understand is how important that first part is. If, if Paul just said, who can be against us, well, we're in trouble. Without that first part of the question, if God is for us, and he is, then we're in trouble. There are things that will come against us without the power of God in our lives that will prevail against us. And like I said, it isn't as though forces won't come against us. For instance, 
the world tends to come against us. And by the world, I mean, I mean people who are, are not in the gospel yet, people who don't understand uh, what it means to know Christ, people who don't understand who Jesus really is, people you might consider outside of the church, meaning that they haven't crossed that line of faith yet. The world can be against us because, because the world doesn't always appreciate our message, the message that that we have an alternative way of living, and that is by the power of Christ. The, the world doesn't always appreciate our message that, as Paul said at the end of chapter 7, we're in big trouble, we can't save ourselves, and we need help. We need God to intervene. But, but not just the world, the flesh can also come against us, our own flesh. And the reason is because our flesh desires what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, does not desire. But... Again, if we're living by the Spirit, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, then the, then the flesh cannot prevail against, it, against us. And then finally, Satan can come against us. Oh yeah, Satan comes. Peter tells us that Satan is out there prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour and to destroy. But God is for us. Ray Ortland, I mentioned last week, wrote a magnificent book on Romans chapter 8. He says this, If God is for us, then God would have to be defeated in order for us to be defeated. Can God be defeated? There's his own rhetorical question, and the answer, of course, is no. So let me ask you a question. What's the most invincible that you've ever felt in your life? All of us have had those moments in life where we felt invincible. Something happened, some victory was attained, something, something happened in our life, and, and at least for a temporary time, we felt like nothing could ever take us down. And, let me ask you this, you don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to do it, Any, but please do if you feel like it, I'd like to see. Any of you ever, like, take on the playground bully in grade school and, and whip him? Or, or her? If you did, we had a couple in the first service, and believe me, they said, yeah, felt pretty invincible after that, because everybody's saying nobody can take that guy, you know. Here you go. Anybody ever outrun the playground bully in elementary school? I felt really invincible until I realized I had to go back to school the next day, and sooner or later, he'd get me, you know. Felt really, how about you get yourself into a mess, and your, your parents come along and bail you out and fix the mess for you. Feel kind of invincible. Maybe not with your parents, but, but with everybody. You feel like your parents will protect you from everything. Hey, here you go. Here's one. I know a lot of people get this feeling. How about if you have a degree or if you have multiple degrees, every time you get a degree, there's just that feeling like, ha, ah, I did it. I got my degree. And then, and then that leads to uh, some people, for some people, it leads to their first uh, big-time paycheck. And you get that first paycheck and you feel kind of invincible then. You're looking at that check going, God, I can actually pay half my rent with this thing. I'm, I'm like almost in business now, you know. You feel kind of invincible. Guys, those of you who are married, um, how about when she said yes? <sighs> Ladies, how about when he finally got the courage to ask you? Well, it's about time. <laughs> Maybe you didn't say it out loud. None of this holds a candle. We can't take any of those times when we felt that way, when we felt that great. I even think of guys that win the Super Bowl or maybe somebody uh, uh, who wins Wimbledon 
the, the people who just won gold medals at the Sashi Olympics. There was that feeling of invincibility, at least temporarily. None of this, no matter how good it is, can possibly hold a candle to God being for you. And, and here's what's really wild about that, and, and part of the context of this passage that we have to press into, and, and it's the fact that <clears throat> we are... We are the most invincible when we are right in the middle of God's will. And very often, God's will either takes us or allows us to go into times of suffering, tribulation, and persecution. And even in the midst of that, when we're asking all those questions, and when we're wondering about God's love for us, and we're wondering about God's power for us, and we pray and we cry out and we say, where are you, God? Even then, we are at our most our most powerful because it's God who is for us and with us, not us, even in the midst of that. We are at our most invincible when we are right in the center of God's will. And that leads us to our second question. And this is the question where I'm going to spend probably the majority of our time. And it comes in verse 32. He gave, us, he gave up His Son for us How can He not graciously give us all things that we need? Very often when we read or study or or talk about this passage, we kind of race past this question because it's a little bit abstract and there's other questions in there that we, we like better and that we think we know better. And I understand that. But I would argue that this might be the most important one of the five. This might be the most important one. He gave us His Son, but He won't give us everything else that we need for life now in Christ to be able to, to, be able to wrestle presently with how difficult life... He's not going to do that for us. He, he promises that He gives us our, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And so you have the Holy Spirit's power and His wisdom. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's also given us, as we've looked at in chapter 8... He's given us the hope of future glory. He's given us that to look forward to so that our present trials don't seem as bad as they really might be. He also gives us defense against accusation. No one can accuse us anymore. We know that His love is secure for us because He gave everything He had for it. Those of you that are parents, I'm a parent. So I I really know what this feels like. And I assume you feel the same way. Those of you who are parents, you know that you will do anything for your children's good, right? Anything. You'll sacrifice anything if it's for their good. Essentially, when you and I become parents, we put our lives on hold in many ways so that we can just pour into them and give them everything and we sacrifice and we invest in them. Do you understand that God took that thing that we pour everything into and that's what He sacrificed. He sacrificed that very thing that we're giving everything for. He sacrificed the very thing that you and I would never give up for the benefit of others. And that's what He gave us. If He gives us that, He's not going to give us everything else that we need. And I'll tell you, I believe there's shadows of, of, of the Old Testament uh, book Genesis chapter 22 here. And by the way, over the next several weeks, I'd say the next 15 weeks, we are going to start to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament because there's so much in the background of what Paul is writing 
that comes from his understanding of, of, of Old Testament theology and, and also history. And I believe that here in the background, there's an echo of Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham. And he says, move from Ur and go to the place that I'll show you. And I'll tell you when you get there. And Abraham faithfully goes. And he goes 900, 1,000 miles. And finally God says, okay, you're there. Now set up shop. And, here's, and then he makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, here's my covenant with you. You, you are going to be the father of this incredible nation. The people are going to number more than the stars. It's going to be incredible. And, and of course, Abraham and Sarah are looking at, at each other and looking at God going, they're, they're in their 90s. They're, one's 90, one's 100. They're la- Sarah literally laughs at God when she hears that this is what God has said. But then along comes Isaac. God intervenes miraculously, gives them a baby, Isaac, after they tried a bunch of other stuff too. It's a magnificent story. And now Isaac is growing and he's, and he's becoming a man. And in Genesis 22, God comes to Abraham and he says, here's what I want you to do, Abraham. I want you to take your son, the only son that you and Sarah had together, the son of the promise, the only one that you have that can carry on this line and, be, and make this nation the, the nation that I promise. I want you to take that son and take him over to Moriah up on one of the hills and you are going to sacrifice Isaac your son there, as a burnt offering to me. And, and Abraham doesn't whine. He doesn't complain. He doesn't push back. He doesn't debate. He just faithfully goes. And he, and he says, come on, Isaac, let's go. And he gets the wood and the, and the fire for the offering. And as they're walking along, Isaac says, Dad, I see the, I see the wood and the, and the fire for the offering, but where, where's the offering? Where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God's going to provide. And so they get up there and they build the, they build the altar. And, and then Abraham, the father, binds his only son, the son, of his, uh, the son of God's promise, binds him and places him on top of the altar. Now, the text doesn't say anything, but at this point, we're pretty sure that Isaac is a little bit suspicious that he might be the offering, okay? And then Abraham reaches for the knife, an angel of the Lord intervenes, and they find a lamb over in the thicket. God did provide the sacrifice. Do you understand that when it came to Jesus, God's own son, there was no 11th hour rescue. Jesus is the sacrifice for us. God gave everything. How could he not possibly give us anything else that we might need to be able to live in Christ? Why would he stop short? So many of us we know intellectually this truth, but we don't operate as though we know this truth. There are no limits to God's grace. We cannot use up God's supply of grace. There's no grace account with our name on it that's just being depleted slowly. And boy, I sure hope I die before we run out of grace. You know what I mean? That account is always full. It never depletes. He's always there giving us what we need. We are secure in the love of God. So, just what is it that we need? That sounds really abstract and interesting and wonderful, but, but where's the application? What is it we need? And I would suggest, again, just like last week, we have to look at the context. 
What we need is actually in verse 29, which we talked a lot about last week. What we need is to be conformed to the image of God's Son. We need to be in relationship with Jesus, moving toward Jesus, looking more and more like Jesus all the time, being conformed to who Jesus is. In other words, what we need is about sin and spiritual wrestling and spiritual warfare even. And, and our connectedness with God through Jesus Christ, His Son. Uh, I've I found, and, and I've been guilty of this myself, and there's times that I'll even slip into this, too often the American church is way too hung up on salvation only being about us being let off the hook for our sin and nothing else. Cross that line of faith, you get to go to heaven and move on with your life next. And that's not what it is all about. That's important, yes, but that's not what it's all about. It's more than that. We are being conformed to God's Son, and and we have this present battle right now of being conformed to God's Son. If, If He wanted us just to go to heaven, He would save us and then take us right to heaven. But we have this life to live here. And this life now is to be conformed to His Son. And as I said, it's a present battle, and that present battle is going to create tension and angst and wrestling and sometimes hardship and suffering, as Paul says here. We get heaven, yes, and I am glad for that. I can't wait. I've told you I'm a Philippians 1 Christian. It's far better to go and be with Jesus. I get that. Okay? But in the meantime, we are being conformed to Christ. So in the meantime, what we really get It's not just heaven. What we really get is the Son's relationship with the Father and His affection for us. We get the Son's relationship with the Father and His love and affection for us. There's a verse in John 3. It's one of my favorites. It's John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, He must increase and I must decrease. And I love that because I have pride issues and that... That verse is a little bit about pride. need to humble myself, and so I, I love that verse. But i got to tell you, as good as that verse is, and in true, as true as that verse is, that's not the end goal. The end goal is not that he would increase and that I would decrease. The end goal is really communion with God and conforming to the image of his Son. Vine and branch, God in us and we in God. That's the goal. So what would be the practical implications of this? Uh, Yes, we need to talk practically about this. Let me speak just autobiographically for a minute. If I were completely conformed to Jesus Christ, just imagine if that were to happen, complete conformity to Christ Jesus, I think I would be a pretty awesome husband and father. And that would be great. Jackie's out of town. She's in Denver for a volleyball tournament this weekend. That's why I'm preaching this right now. She doesn't listen to the podcast. She'll never know. (laughs) Because she'd be going, amen, amen, amen. Here you go. If I were completely conformed to Christ, I would be a better pastor, a better shepherd, and a better preacher. The closer I get to Christ, the better I'm going to be able to do those things. The more conformed I am to Christ, the better I'm going to be able to do those things. And i got to tell you, that's an affection of my heart. I came here a little over two years ago with great trepidation. Anytime you change, there's great trepidation. And there was trepidation on your part as well. 
And I'll tell you, I have grown to love this church with a love I could never fathom that I would have for a church. It's been unbelievable. And I want to be a better pastor. I want to be a better shepherd. I, I want to be able to do that. But in all of those scenarios, husband, father, pastor, what comes first? Conformity to Christ. As good as being a better father, a better pastor, a better, a, a, a better husband, as good as those things are, that's not the goal. The goal is conformity to Christ. And through that, those other affections, those are secondary things. The primary thing is conformity to Christ. And through that, I can have a better influence and impact in all of those other areas. Here you go. I, I've noticed this. A, a lot of people want to do the right thing, but not very many people really want to look like Jesus. A, a lot of people want to be led to Jesus and they want to know who Jesus is. But a lot of people don't, but those same people, many of them don't want to look like Jesus. There are many people who desire the upside of a relationship with Jesus. They, they desire a relationship of receptivity with Jesus, but they don't want to look like Jesus. Because their affections are elsewhere. And, and I will confess to you, it's true. The affections of my heart are my wife and my kids and this church. Those are the affections of my heart. But the goal is not that I would love them better, though that is a good thing. But rather the goal is to be conformed to Christ. And one of the results of that is that I will love better. So maybe your affection is for your friends. Be conformed to Christ. Maybe your affection is for your family. Or maybe it's for the church. You know, Eugene, his, his highest affection on earth is for God's church. You know that and you see that in his life. The best way he can do that is to be conformed to Christ. Maybe, maybe your affection is for the city or your neighborhood or for the creation itself. These are all wonderful things and our affections should be there and we should affirm those affections. But the first thing we need to do is be conformed to Christ. That's our call. Verse 29. And God gives us everything we need to be able to do that. So that's question two. Questions three and four I'm going to handle together. Let me read verses 33 and 34 so you're reminded of those questions. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding, who indeed is interceding for us. I want you to imagine a court scene. Not difficult to do. We all watch TV or movies at, at times. Some of us are even in that business. Many believe that a court scene is what God had in mind when he wrote these two questions because of the quote, forensic nature of the language here. And it's the scene of a verdict that has already been read. It's that scene where the judges come in and pronounce judgment, and the trial is over, but it's the aftermath, after the verdict's been rendered. And the verdict that God, the judge, has given for you is not guilty. And the trial is over. God has proclaimed your victory in Jesus Christ, and there's nothing Anyone or anything can do to change that verdict. But now someone comes and tries to accuse you after the fact. Guess what? It falls on deaf ears. You are in Christ now. God is not going to listen 
to this accusation. The case cannot be reopened. No one can bring a charge against those whom God has already exonerated and those whom God has already exonerated can never be condemned. That answers both of those questions right there. And again, don't turn there. I'm going to ask you to turn to something else in the Old Testament in just a minute. But I want to read to you. A lot of people think, and and I would agree, that Paul maybe had Zechariah, which is an Old Testament prophet, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 in mind when he wrote that. L- listen to Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right, at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. Being clothed in filthy garments is a symbol or a sign of the sin and corruption that Joshua had. He's dirty. He's sinful. He's corrupt. And he's clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And then the angel said to him, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. That's you and I in Christ Jesus. No one can bring a charge. No one can condemn us. God is standing right there to rebuke any charge, any suggestion of condemnation. Jesus sits at the right hand interceding for us. And that again is a sign of God's diligence in his love for us. And then verse 35 is our last question. There's actually two questions there, but it's the same question essentially, just reworded differently. Paul writes this, Who shall spare us from the love of Christ? I'm sorry, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? All of these are rough things, tough things that come in our lives. But Paul is rolling now. Paul is is in the zone. It's just, he's just in the flow. And of course, there is no answer. It's a rhetorical question. Nothing can separate us. And he starts this idea of the separation of of us from the love of God, he starts this potential idea that that maybe suffering and persecution could do it. And in verse 36, he quotes Psalm 44. This is verse 22 of Psalm 44. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What exactly does that mean? I'm going to do something I think we need to do. It'll take us five or six minutes. I think it's really important. I I really believe that too often when Paul or any other New Testament writer quotes an Old Testament verse, what we tend to do is quickly explain it, but we don't linger. We need to linger a little bit here. Because without lingering, we don't get its full essence, its full effect. You see, when Paul wrote this to the church at Rome, the vast majority of the people who would be reading this letter or would hear the letter read, they would understand that reference of, of Psalm Uh, 44 verse 22 they would know what Paul meant because they know the whole psalm and they know the story behind the psalm but most of us don't really 
So, so turn to Psalm 44 if you have your Bibles open. I, I want to read that psalm to you. But I want to set it up a little bit. See, Paul is making an interesting point here in citing this psalm. He's saying, listen, these difficulties do strike us. If you're somebody uh, that, that, that is in the gospel, if you're one of God's children, there are going to be difficulties. That's just the way it is. But even in those difficulties, we can't be lost by God. And that's what this psalm ultimately says. It's a lament psalm. It's a psalm that cries out and complains and re- expresses some measure of stress and anxiety. It's one that acknowledges that the life for those who love God is not always cupcakes and muffins. It's a challenge. It's hard. And it's one of the toughest lament psalms. It starts out really well, but then it just gets rough. But also, ultimately, what the psalm is telling us is that God loves us and God wins, and therefore, we cannot be defeated. We are more than conquerors. And, and, and the psalm is written by, according to Scripture, the sons of Korah. So who is Korah? Okay, Korah is this guy from the Old Testament again, uh, from the book of Numbers. There's a, there's a book in the Old Testament in the first five books called Numbers. It's chapter 16. I would encourage you to read the story. It's a wild story. Um, Korah... Uh, here's the context. Moses has led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. They've, they've gotten rid of the Egyptians. They're no longer chasing them. They've come through the Red Sea. All of that good stuff has happened. But now they're in the, in the wilderness. And they're kind of trying to make do in the wilderness. And it's, and it's, and it's not the most pleasant place to live. And, and, and Korah is a little upset that they're now stuck in the wilderness. And he, he's one of those people that begins to reminisce about what it was like when they were in slavery in Egypt. But at least when they were in slavery, they, get to, they got to eat things like cucumbers and leeks. And he misses the cucumbers and the leeks. That's a part of it, not all of it. But he's upset. He, he thinks that they need somebody else to lead them. And so he leads a rebellion against Moses and he gets a couple of his friends and they gather another 250 guys and, and they rise up and rebel against Moses and this was bad news for them because God was on Moses' side. And if you read into the, into the story, you get to one point where God says, look, you better get away from Korah and his gang because I'm going to do something. And this is that story where those 250 guys are standing there and the earth opens up and swallows them up. No more Korah, no more rebellion. Okay? But the grandsons of Korah were spared. They apparently saw this happen, but they were spared. And their clan, the sons of Korah, their clan goes on to be a very important clan. The, you know, the protectors of the ark and warriors and fighters for David. And, and that, by the way, David is hundreds and hundreds of years later. So this clan lived on. But... Their legacy, the sons of Korah, their legacy was always one of hardship, suffering, and persecution, oppression, tribulation. It was always hard. And they continued in that vein always for God and His people, but it was always hard. And many of the Psalms are written by this, by this clan, the, the sons of Korah. A lot of them are written by David, but, but the sons of Korah wrote a lot of the Psalms. In fact, we sang a song from another psalm, probably our favorite sons of Korah psalm. Psalm 42, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after you. We sang that song right before we, we got into this. That's one of their psalms. But 44 is a, is a little bit tougher, a, a tough lament. So let me just take you through it real quickly. 
and give you the full context of what Paul is saying here. And like I said, it starts really well. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm, and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob, for Israel. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we, boasted, we have boasted continually and we give thanks to your name forever. So they're acknowledging that God is the one who intercedes for us, who fights for us, who wins for us. And we must remember that, that as he does, we only boast in him. It's not by our power that, that we can do that. But now here come the trials, the challenges, and the suffering. Verse 9, but you have rejected us and disgraced us. You have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe. And those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. You have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. We don't like to be mocked, do we? You ever been mocked? We don't like that. They, they didn't like it either. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. And what they're saying here is truth is, God, when we go through this hard stuff and we begin to ask you where you are, where is your power, where are your promises, why is it... Why is it that what we think is good doesn't look like what you think is good? It is hard for us to see your goodness. It's hard for us to see your spirit. It's hard for us to see your purpose in the midst of this. It hurts when we're mocked and we lose these battles. We know that we're going to lose battles but ultimately win the war. But it's still no fun to lose those battles and we wonder where you are in the midst of those battles. What are you doing, God? Verses 17 through 22. All of this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart is not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would God not discover this? For he knows the secrets of our heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. There's the verse that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 8. Paul is saying, listen, the sons of Korah remained faithful in their trials and even cried out, where are you God as we remain faithful? They never did seek after other gods, even though they probably could have justified it because of the suffering they were going through. They remained faithful in their trials. And this has been happening to the people of God since the very beginning. We must understand that. And then the psalm finishes. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. 
Maybe you've never prayed those exact words of Psalm 44, but you've prayed words just like them. Come on, God, where are you? I need you right now. Come and rescue me. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. And then here's the payoff sentence. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. That last line, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love, is not a cry of desperation, but rather it's a call of confidence that God's steadfast love can never be broken. And that is the context in which Paul quotes this verse. So as we go through our trials and our tribulations, Paul is saying, that won't separate us from the love of God. His love is secure. And if you think that God's love has failed you, it hasn't. What may have failed you, and it fails me sometimes too, is is my expectation of what God's love is supposed to look like. And that's where prayer comes in. That's why prayer is so helpful. And that's why Paul talks about prayer in the context of these verses in 26 and 27 because it's prayer that aligns our will with God's will, our good with God's good, and our purpose with God's purpose. Verse 37 says, Nope, not even these things can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. In fact, we are more than conquerors by the love that's in Christ. The end of Psalm 44 says it. It's His steadfast love that ultimately delivers us and secures us and always allows us ultimately to live as conquerors. Just like the sons of Korah always experienced hardship, yet they were still conquerors. And so Paul is answered, in effect, these five unanswerable questions. He's, he's talked about them, and we've unpacked them. We've looked at this idea that if God is for us, then who could ever prevail against us? He gave us His Son. Why wouldn't He give us everything else that we need for life here and now? Who could possibly charge us with anything after God has already rendered a verdict? Who could possibly bring condemnation against us? Not even Satan can do that. And finally, there is not one thing that can separate us from the love of God. Not even when the challenges come. And they will come. And that takes us to Paul's crescendo in verses 38 and 39. Let me read those verses again. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Two commentators said essentially the same thing about these two verses. They said that verses 38 and 39 do not need interpretation because instead they inspire reflection. So often, you and I desire to dig deep into the text and find out what it really means that sometimes we don't stop and read verses like these and understand that we should just stop and rest in them. And so rather than digging, let's just rest in 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jack is going to come and lead us in our time of response. God, we thank you for your love, your unseparable love. 
God, we thank you that Paul has, te- has taught us that this morning. God, I pray that we would be people that would lean into that, that would understand that, that would live in victory of the gospel promises, including this promise that nothing can separate us from your love. God, you give us what we need for this life. So help us to live by that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.